Hello, everyone, and welcome to this latest Fed in Conversation piece with Sir Michael Barber. I'm really pleased to have Michael here today. Michael, you're most welcome to the Fed Conversation piece. Thank um, you. I'm Michael, your, your reputation precedes you from that point of view. I'm not going to spend any time telling anybody what you've done. They will know what you've done. But you are in the middle of launching a new book called Accomplishment, which aims to look at the ambitious and challenging thing, how ambitious and challenging things get done. So can you tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to write this book? Uh, yes, and first of all, thank you very much for the invitation and thanks to Fed for all its work uh, uh, over the years and, and continuing to the future. I wrote Accomplishment for a very, it was a very powerful uh, motivation I had that I'd done, as you know, work uh, in government, partly in education systems, but also with governments, prime ministers, presidents around the world for, for many years. And what I saw uh, was a pattern that applied across government, but then I began to see that it applied across elite sport, across uh, great businesses, that, that the pattern of, of accomplishing ambitious and challenging things seemed to repeat itself. Even when I decided to run a half marathon myself, I applied the same set of principles in microcosm to myself, and it worked. So um, I believe strongly there's a pattern to accomplishment. I believe strongly that as we come out of the lockdown, uh, people around the country will want to accomplish great things. Uh, and understanding the pattern uh, gives people uh, a motivation and a, a signpost as how they could really accomplish uh, ambitious and challenging things. And just to summarize the argument, my argument is anybody can accomplish ambitious and challenging things, but nobody should think it's easy, it's hard. Absolutely. And you mentioned, um, the signature pattern of high accomplishment. I suppose just to, to, to spend a moment talking about some of the generics about that. What, what have you learned in your research on that then? What, what golden nuggets can you share with us? Well, well so, uh, some of it will be very familiar to people, but it's spelled out. Uh, so the first is obviously to, ambition, to do ambitious and challenging things. You've got to be ambitious. You've got to set the ambition. How far do you want to go? And what, what comes out in, when you see it in business or in science or exploration um, or government is... You get to ambition by finding out what the experts think, by looking at the data and the evidence, but not being limited by them. Because if you're going to do something completely innovative that's never been done before, the data won't tell you. So uh, setting the ambition is partly a matter of understanding the evidence and partly a matter of making a judgment. How urgent is it to change this thing, either in your life or in your business or in your school uh, or indeed in the country? And I have give, give examples like, like JFK and the famous... 1961 speech we're going to put a man on the moon uh, by the end of the 1960s he did make that speech uh, congress wasn't that impressed actually if you there was kind of muttering um and it wasn't until 1966 when lbj uh, johnson made a, a speech to nasa uh, that the goal got sharpened up because until then it was we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s but in the 1966 speech johnson's speechwriter wanting to make it a bit more newsy, put in, we're going to put the first man on the moon. So one word added just changed everything. The Soviets had put an unmanned spacecraft on the moon only uh, a few weeks earlier. Uh, nobody checked the speech before it went to Johnson. He thought all the experts would take this line, this word out of the speech, but they all missed it. And Johnson loved it, delivered the speech, news around the world. This poor speechwriter who was called Bob Hardesty thought he was going to be fired because NASA was furious. But Johnson loved it, and so he survived to write another speech. The point is, 
that sense of ambition came not from the expert, but from the person who looked at it and thought, actually, we could do that and just wrote the word in and then the decision maker liked it. So there's lots of examples like that. So if you're making a decision about what you want to accomplish in your school or, uh, or as an individual or in a business or whatever, think about the evidence, think about the data and then think what you'd really like to do. So the vision. In yes. Many ways. Yeah. Um, you, you, but, but make it measurable. It's more than the vision. We're going to do it by the end of the 1960s. It's not a vision. It's a, it's a vision with a, with, a, with a hard edge. A vision with a hard edge. Yeah. An interesting point. Now, now, you also in your book bring together a plethora of stories just like that to, to, to show evidence. You must have some favourites in that book. Yes. Well, one of my favourites um, is, uh, and given it's uh, uh, obviously in the news this summer, um, is Gareth Southgate and the World Cup in Russia in 19, uh, no, sorry, 2018. He, um, I, I interviewed him for the book uh, and I wanted to understand how he had made sure that England, for the first time in history, won a penalty shootout in a World Cup. Most people remember the penalty shootout against Colombia. And you go through it and it's a perfect case of explicit delivery thinking. Everybody in the squad practices one penalty at least so that if they're chosen, if they're on the pitch at the end and they have to do a penalty, they know which penalty they're going to do. They don't change their mind as they walk up. They just do the penalty they've practiced hundreds of times. They wore out the penalty spots on the training pitches. Mm. Uh, the goalkeepers have what the, the four, the three goalkeepers and the coach have watched all the penalties taken by Colombians that they can find televised. And they've together, they've decided, well, if he takes a penalty, we'll dive this way or that way. So for each of them. And then they've written on Pickford's water bottle all the names of the Colombian players and which way to dive. That is fantastic. They've thought about the gap between the end of the match and the penalty shootout starting when there's chaos. Everybody who's watched a World Cup match knows that. They brought calm to that so that people can focus on it. And even then, they depend on a bit of luck. One of the Colombians hit the bar and it went over. But the thoroughness rippled out, not just on penalty shootouts, but across the whole way the squad prepared for the World Cup. And one hopes that something similar is happening uh, in the Euros. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I, I kind of grew up in the, the 70s and 80s and watched, uh, as I'm sure you, you, you did as well, a plethora of occasions when, um, when, when the England football team just couldn't win a, a penalty shootout. But there's, there's a lesson there of thoroughness and preparation, isn't there? Yes, there is. Uh, it's, it's about attention to detail and consistency. Um, and um, the, the, the ex what, what Gareth Southgate calls the exercise of a skill under pressure. And although, of course, when you're practicing, it's not you haven't got 80,000 people baying at you and uh, millions of people watching on television. But because you've practiced, you can do it with more automatically. And for Southgate, the motivation was very strong because he famously missed a penalty in the 1996 Euros. And so that had burnt with him for, for, the, for the next 25 years. Uh, so he didn't want any of his squad to have that experience. It was a very powerful piece of personal motivation as well. Mm. So has a range of stories, as we've talked about. That's one of them. Is yeah. there another special story you'd like to share with us? There's one, yeah, there's one, I, I, uh, which is totally different. Um, as I said, the book is dedicated to my Quaker heritage. I was brought up a Quaker. I went to Quaker school. Uh, I'm not an active Quaker, but I, I, I love the thinking that I learned in my youth. So um, the first story I tell is of Mary Fisher, who was one of the first generation of Quakers in the 1650s. She was a servant 
in a house in Selby when the founder of Quakerism, George Fox, came and preached and she was converted there and then she just thought this was absolutely wonderful. So she stopped being a servant and started touring the country preaching the core message of Quakerism, which is not that you have to obey a priest, not that you have to go to church, uh, not that anybody else can tell you what the Bible says or what to believe. You have to work it out for yourself. And in every person, in her, in George Fox's words, there's that of God, and you have to find that out. And that's how we'll make a better society. That was her strong belief. So she went around preaching it. She got beaten up. She got imprisoned. She got uh, whipped, uh, uh, as was common for that kind of uh, uh, breach of the code at the time. She went to Boston to try and convert people in Massachusetts. They locked her up the moment she got off the boat uh, and was only rescued by an elderly uh, person who had some sympathy for her views and she got uh, re released but then sent away from, from America. And then she came back to Britain. She said, this isn't working. I've got to do something even more ambitious. I'm going to go and convert the Ottoman Sultan. The Ottoman Empire was the world power at that time. Uh, and obviously, I'm sure everybody said to her, you must be crazy. So she went, she went to um, Turkey. The British representative met her in Izmir uh, and said, oh, yes, I'll help you do that. But actually, he'd put on a boat back to Venice because he thought she was crazy. The boat crashed on a Greek island. She escaped and she saw that as an act of God. He wants me to do this. So she then let, she had four companions. They left her. So they were thinking this woman is absolutely, we just can't keep up with her. She got onto the coast of Turkey she walked to Adrianople, where she discovered the uh, Sultan was. She met the, 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 uh, his chief advisor, convinced him that the Sultan would like this. Is like, this is like meeting the President of the United States or, 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 or um, the, the, the President of China. Uh, and he allowed her into the presence of the Sultan, who was about 19 at the time, young man. And she explained her message to him. And he said, that is a beautiful message and it's absolutely right. He loved it. And then um, she, he said, do you want some soldiers to accompany you to the coast? And she said, no, no I'm, I'm a pacifist. I'll walk on my own. Uh, and she went back. Now, that is an amazing accomplishment to go and see the Sultan as an individual until recently servant who is inspired by this message. And there's a kind of moral fervor there. And then she, later on, she founded a Quaker colony in South Carolina and lived out her days there. But it, it, it's that kind of faith can move mountains, we say, don't we? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it really can. I don't necessarily mean Christian faith. I mean, faith can move mountains. Faith to achieve something. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that deep belief in something that you could do this. Mm. So... Michael, we talked many times about the work of the Foundation for Education Development, and, uh, and I suppose kind of like turning to um, how education reform is done. Did you did did you um, find anything while writing your book that would help how organisations, governments would would think about uh, how to develop education reform and how to go about it? Yeah, you, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the messages and accomplishment apply to everything, including education systems. And there are some examples from education. I'll tell the story to, to illustrate the detail of planning of how we did the national literacy strategy for primary schools back in the 19, late 1990s. You remember the literacy hour and all that. Mm. And I explained that to explain the, the level of thinking you have to do if you're in government to get something to happen in every school in the country. Mm. Um, 
and uh, critics will call it top down. Absolutely, we were a government. We wanted to transform reading and writing for for, for primary school pupils, uh, and teach. We wanted to train every teacher in best practices in teaching reading, and we we uh, did do that. So. Um, Yes, it's absolutely relevant. And the, 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 the first is to be ambitious, we, uh, which we've talked about. The second is to have a, a strategy. What, what is your, how, how, do you, how are you going to achieve this? There's no, there's no good having a, an ambition and no strategy. And uh, you can overdo the time you spend on strategy and planning, but you do need to do it. You do need to know what the steps you take uh, and how the system would work. What is the delivery chain between you and affecting um, a, a seven-year-old in Wigan or a 10-year-old in... Uh, Rotherham. You, so you have to think that through in a very systematic way as part of your planning, but then you have to get on with it because uh, one of the things I argue in the book, and I see this again and again, is if you postpone something once, that's probably a mistake. If you postpone it twice, it's basically a dishonest way of saying I'm not going to do it. Um, we've all met people who said they'd joined the gym, bought all the kits, went once, maybe once again, and then, the, the uh, you know, we, we, we know that is a, it's a common human characteristic and it applies to organizations as well as individuals so you've got to get on with it and then you have to see it through even when the going gets tough not get deflected not get distracted by crises just stick with it and for governments the key thing is to have part of your organization that whatever the crises are going on that this this part is just focus on delivering the things you care about most and that's that was my job for tony blair and i've seen governments around the world do that brilliantly that's brilliantly done in punjab pakistan um, currently in, in a number of American cities where they're reducing climate change in New South Wales, Justin Trudeau's Canada. That's the kind of mindset you have to get into. And it isn't easy. It's a long grinding haul, but somebody has to get in there and do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and keep that focus over a period of time and, 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 and have that long-term focus as well. It, yeah. you, I suppose you, you were quite fortunate, really, when you worked for Tony Blair, because you had more than a, the, than a political cycle to work with, didn't you? Didn't you? And, and, and that length of time is important in education. Yes, it is. And it should be, before I answer that, which I, I totally agree with, Carl, the, 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 among the many people I've met who've got this mindset and know about it, uh, the, probably the place I've met it most often, most regularly, are with head teachers, and you know many of them. You, you in fact, you, you are one yourself. Are people who've turned around schools, they they have the vision, they have the determination. They know it's a long grinding haul. They don't expect it all to change overnight, but they just stick with it. And the teachers in the school don't always, in in my experience, like the head teachers like that. But they hugely respect them. They see that that's what's going to be great for kids and the children, and that persistence through thick and thin and there's there's lots of both as anybody who's turned around a school knows so i think uh, in terms of accomplishment the thousands of head teachers in our country who've turned around schools and taken them to a whole new level are among the the, the greatest uh citizens of our country they've done amazing work so i, I just want to emphasize this but yes you do have to have a long-term view and then you in if you're in if you're a government you have to then earn the right to fulfill that long-term vision and that means winning elections periodically and so the the dilemma which i always pose to political leaders is you have to have a long-term strategy to do what you want to do but unless you deliver short-term results no one will believe you so you've got to get you've got to do both of that um and indeed um like to take the current government now the, the, the boris johnson government 
they have a long-term goal for climate change. Everybody will be familiar with that. But they also know they're hosting COP26 in November of 2021. And they want to go there and say, we're already doing these things. So they're acting now on planting trees, on putting more rapid charges for electric vehicles around the country, and so on and so on and so on. So you have to have a long-term strategy, but unless you deliver short-term results, your credibility wears thin. Mm, um, your book, ha again, has a, a number of stories where you've experienced and, and talked with people around uh, the world on how they've done something. Uh, there's one particular story from the PM of Mozambique that yeah. I think is fascinating. Would you like to share that with us? Yes. Um, she's a, she, she was, um, she's called Louisa Diogo, and she was finance minister for several years and then prime minister for six years in the 2000s, so, the, the, so a decade or so ago. Um, and she, the, the, there are two things that are really telling about her story. One is she was very good at building coalitions of people around her. She, she built trust among people. Uh, and so more and more people would come with her because of the way she was as a human being. She'd talk to them. When she was prime minister, for example, she never referred to the relatively minor departments as small departments. In fact, she was always respectful of them because then when she had a big decision to make that was controversial with some of the bigger departments, they would support her. So she was both canny and thoughtful. Uh, and she, she, she made a big point of regularly having coffee with the, the, the different ministers. So she was very good at building what the book uh, describes as guiding coalitions, the people who understood what was trying to be done uh, and would go with her because they respected her and because they admired the strategy and they understood what she was trying to do. But the second thing is she also, and this is very, very important, I think, in uh, 21st century politics, she understood that it's not, it's not, it's never going to work as a government if you do things and constantly claim that you did them because people begin to discount it. So when I said to her partway through, she, so there was one year in, in that early phase, when she was still finance minister, where she delivered 15% growth in a single year in GDP. That's, you know, we, we, we think we're doing well in Britain if we get two or two and a half percent. And that the long-term average in Britain over a hundred years or so is about 2% a year. She got 15% in a single year. First, she didn't believe it, but then the World Bank said, no, no, it really is true. So she was, pleased about that I said to her how did you do that and she said I didn't I didn't do it we didn't do it she said we created a context and the women of Mozambique did it they saw the context they grew things they went to market they made the they made the walk to the nearest town whatever they began to generate economic growth so uh, her point was we unleashed people we we unlocked the music in people was her exact phrase that's a beautiful phrase and I think if you're if you're an education minister around the world, this country or any other, um, you, you have many responsibilities, but one of them is to unlock the music in people. Uh, and if you're a head teacher or a teacher, one of the things you want to do is unlock the music in the ch children, the students, the young people. And if you do that, you're going to transform things in ways that go beyond your wildest dreams of accomplishment. Mm. No, that's it is a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Absolutely agree. Can I ask a question? This, this, I don't know if the, I think your book might might refer to this, but um, did you ask the question of people, what's it like when you've achieved something and you've got to the end? Yes, I did. Um, I did ask that, and um, it's quite a difficult part of accomplishment. And 
I make a strong argument about this. Um, quite often people feel a sense of uh, letdown or the loss of a big motivating power when you've accomplished something great. I've got a little bit section about Boris Becker who won Wimbledon as a very young man and then the expectations of him rose enormously but he was still the same young person you know like the rest of us struggling to get through the day and it was very difficult for for mental health reasons i tell an even more uh challenging story of of meriwether lewis who thomas jefferson back in 1803 thomas jefferson asked meriwether lewis to explore the west to to find if if you could get from the east to the united states the west mainly on rivers so he goes up the Missouri. Then, of course, they discover the Rocky Mountains. The, the Native uh, Americans obviously knew they were there, but but the the, the people from the, the East Coast didn't. Uh, it was a very dramatic journey, but he made it. He mapped it. He wrote beautiful uh, diary of the whole thing. He got back to Washington, sailed around um, around around through, through through Central America across land, and then back up the East Coast. And Jefferson welcomes him back, and and is thrilled to bits with the notes and the research. And Jefferson was a uh, massive intellect. Jefferson makes him um, governor of the Louisiana Territory, which is like the whole of the Mississippi Valleys. But, but Meriwether Lewis is only about 29 years old and he really struggles with this. And Jefferson keeps writing to him saying, have you written up your notes? Because we really must publish them. And he keeps saying, yeah, I'm on it. But actually he was struggling. And uh, on the way back to Washington a few years later, he stopped at a inn, Grinders Inn, it was called in Kentucky, um, said to the owner, uh, what a beautiful evening it was, and um, and then committed suicide. I mean, he he, he just lost the ability. Mm-hmm. He'd become an absolute celebrity, done this magnificent uh, achievement, uh, and then really struggled with it. So you have to prepare for that. And I, I think, for, you know, football managers, for example, or great sports people need to prepare themselves for when they can't run the fastest marathon anymore. Whatever. It's, it's a huge challenge uh, to do. Um, so, yes, and, and I think you... You can have that sense of loss. So, so preparing yourself for that. And my argument strongly is the reason do whatever it is that you're going to do for the right reasons, for the moral purpose, because then however you feel, you know you've accomplished the moral purpose. Uh, and the critics don't always agree with you. If you turn a school around, there'll be people saying, well, she did it this way, or she should have done it that way, or she was too hard on people, or whatever it, whatever it is. So the critics won't always recognise it. So do it for the right reasons. Don't expect adulation or affirmation, and don't necessarily expect to feel in the short term a great sense of achievement yourself, and prepare yourself for the next thing. But remember the moral purpose throughout. Moral purpose. Uh, that is a really important phrase, and the way we live our lives to finish on one might say in this fascinating conversation with you Michael and the book if people want to read it which the many thousands of people watching watching this this uh, in conversation I'm sure will where where do you get it from I assume google it online it's it's on it's on Amazon it's a penguin book it looks like this um and yeah it's published by penguin it's available on Amazon people are buying it regularly uh it's been reviewed in various places so um if you if you're excited by the idea um there's I I'm biased, obviously. There's lots of great stories. And I think the early feedback I've had is people do get inspired to want to go and do things. Um, so that, that that's my mission. Uh, I hope that's that turns out to be right. Fascinating. Well, I, I'm sure that um, it, more and more people will, will, will buy the book. Uh, and I, I think, you know, whenever we talk, Michael, 
your ability to relay a story and pick out from that story some really interesting points we can learn from is one of the things I always personally get from a conversation with you. So I'm sure it will be a fascinating reading. So Michael Barber, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you, Carl, and thanks to Fed. Uh, and uh, thanks to anybody who's listening. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye.